This is a personal story I never felt or I never suspected I'd feel compelled to tell. It hasn't been easy for me to be on the internet all these years. I started off in 2005. I wasn't living in Ireland at the time. I was living in Bath, one of those historic cities in the south of England. My wife and I were expecting a baby. Yes, it was in, in the summer of 2005, and I was preparing to do something I'd never done before. I was preparing to have a daughter. I'd done a lot of things in my life, and it was time to do something new. It was time for me to stop resisting the impulse to write down my thoughts and feelings, my descriptions and my stories about what I was like myself and what the journey into fatherhood was going to be like. I had two sons already from my first marriage. Both of those sons were born in the 1980s. Here I was in the noughties, 2005, and I opened a, a newsletter, an email newsletter, all about knowledge management. And a guy mentioned at the end of it a number of things that were becoming popular in the whole world, and one of them was called a blog. And that was how I first became aware that there was such a thing as a blog, and that's how I started to become a blogger. The context was that I decided my daughter was going to be a very important person in my life. I suppose to be to keep it on even track, it was that the child was going to be very important in my life. And I didn't know anything about blogging. I wasn't, I never have been a very technically sophisticated person. I was used to sending emails, fair enough. This was way before social media, really. So I started to, to jump into cold water. It, it was technically tricky. I'll never forget how difficult it was to start blogging. I actually hadn't a clue how to put make things bold, how to put things in italic, how to make paragraphs, how to lay out a page of text the way I wanted to lay it out. If I could get it to look halfway decent, even if it wasn't the way I wanted to lay it out, that was good enough for a while. It took me, I can't tell you how many hours and hours and hours to figure out how you put a photograph into a blog so it was a terrible labor. My entry into blogging was hard. But there was one thing that was extraordinarily easy about it. I had a guaranteed audience for my writing, for my communications, whatever I was going to put down about my experiences, my feelings, my intentions, my hopes, my fears, my ambitions, anything at all. I had a guaranteed audience, and that's what a lot of people I've known over the years haven't had. And they've struggled with really difficult issues like, what on earth would people want to read from me? What, who, who would be bothered reading this? And they think, oh, look, I might just be producing stuff that nobody will pay any attention to. And that's a real burden when you're afflicted with those kind of thoughts day in, day out. I mean, how to keep going into the vacuum of nobody's going to like this. 
maybe I should be giving them what they like rather than writing what I like. And anyway, all of those existential angst, all of that horrible, horrible, horrible. But I had the easiest ride anyone could ever have had. Yeah, and this guaranteed audience stayed with me. And I didn't just begin doing a blog post once a week. I began a daily blog post. And I didn't just do one blog a day. I think in my first six months, which is 180 days, I did about 360 blog posts to a day on average. That meant some days there were five. I would say in the first six or seven years of blogging on the internet, I was the most prolific blogger that, certainly the most prolific one I ever came across. And many times more prolific than the most successful bloggers in the world. I was absolutely a quantity person. Other people could judge whatever they liked about the quality. But as far as I was concerned, I could be certain of one thing. I was a hero when it came to quantity. I was dedicated. And I knew, and the great thing, I keep coming back to this, I knew that my little daughter was born in 2005, would one day love to read everything I was writing. That was what held me together. Absolute certainty that when I thought about the whole issue about an audience, I thought, whose stuff would I most like to read if somebody said to me, Paul, here, here's all the writings of all these people in the world. Which would you prefer read? Your great-grandmother's blog or the first draft of Principica Ethica, or um, what else would the great everyman speak about? Yeah, Plato's first draft of, of, of the dialogues. No, it would be my great-grandmother. I knew my daughter would one day, after she got through all this stuff, you know, dad is irrelevant, and you know, got through all of these teenage years that she was bound to have when she thought I was totally irrelevant. Someday, someday, she would definitely want to read me. So I, I, I kept going. And of course, the more you do of something, the better you get at it, the more satisfaction you draw from it. And blogging became my way of life. And I always kept that one, one reader in mind. I've since read lots of people giving advice, newspaper columnists and all that, saying to people, look, when you're writing a regular column, keep in mind one person. Think that you're going to be speaking or writing to one person. And that's where, that's, that, that really has made a huge difference to me. That's been good when it comes to, to writing, writing poetry, writing fiction, writing anything that I've, I've, I've ever written. Move things on a little bit, and I took to audio. See, I came across a man who said that one of his biggest regrets in life was that he didn't have the voice, a recording of the voice of his mother, and she was now dead. So he set up Audio Boo. I won't go through the history of it, but I took to making audio with alacrity. At the beginning, gingerly, gradually, more and more pleasure from it to the point where at one stage many years later when I'd been doing audio for many years I said to myself oh look why have I spent all those years writing writing handwriting typing the whole thing 
I could have just spoken. I mean, how much better would it have been if I'd used my voice rather than my fingers? Anyway, that just happens to be the way it came out. But I made a big mistake over the years as an audio person. I never really got the same degree of clarity about my audio as I did about my writing. I suppose to be fair to myself, and rather than describe myself as not having done it well on Audio Boom, I did it well on Audio Boom. I did have a an audience in mind all the time. And again, it really was my daughter. Because not only did I feel that I was on an anthropological field trip, but I felt that I was constructing a narrative constructing a story of what life was like in 2009, 2010, 11, 12, wherever I was. I was actually recording, producing the raw materials from which any kind of historian could work, even if the only kind of historian they were were a family historian. But the, the, the audios that I was making were important for me. They were terribly important. I have three and over 3,000 of them now on Audio Boom alone. When Anchor came along, I lost the way of myself in the sense that I got really drawn into the interaction with other human beings, the audio, the conversational back and forth. I forgot my audience. Well, I guess when I was back and forth with an individual, I didn't because I was talking to them. But when it came particularly on Anchor version 2, where, as several people have described it to me, it felt more like as if you were broadcasting from a station to people who were out there. Kevin Nomalone describes it beautifully at times. But lots of other people have described it as well, the contrast between the two. It, it, I didn't have a single person to whom I was speaking. I haven't had a single person to whom I've been speaking almost, uh, almost ever on anchor. Now, when I've been replying in a call in to Jennifer Elin or to Tashi or to Barbara KB or to, to Scott Lowe or to Perth Lady, um, Georgie D, uh, all the people, Robert Neal, anyone who comes into my head. I've been talking to them as people. When I do call in, so I do speak to them, to them and to them alone, right, in that sense. If it's a bonus that anybody else ever, you know, is interested in it or whatever, but I'm very personal, and I intend to be personal. I mean it in a personal way. Everything I say is personal. I got distracted yeah, by a phone call and I'm not sure and that was that was 30 minutes ago and I don't not sure if I can pick up exactly where I left off so let me just start a new paragraph and say that I've listened to the advice of 
Avi and I've listened to the advice of a number of other people who have spoken very persuasively about the benefits of speaking on anchor to a single person as opposed to the whole world and to talk in a way that is a communication to a person and that is genuine and real and unless you're doing a spoof station if you like on which anything goes but that you actually keep in your mind when you're making audio on the internet and in podcasting that you have a person to whom you're speaking I've heard people give advice that when you're making a speech to a group of people that you should make it in such a way that you're talking to a particular person in the audience and it's this idea of having a person with whom you're talking to whom you're you're offering your ideas to whom you're offering your voice having that person in front of mind all the time as opposed to an abstraction of the internet or the whole of the anchor community no to be human to human the advantages of that the realization that I could do more in that area when I'm talking on anchor when I'm making pieces of audio which haven't got a particular individual who I'm in from anchor who I'm in touch with when when I'm talking so that I'm not talking into a vacuum I've decided I'm talking with Joe Joe is the person who listens to every piece of audio that I make out there Joe is my best listener and when I'm talking with Joe Joe is always reminding me that it's a real human being who's there so you'll hear me in future talking to Joe and sometimes I'll use Joe's name and that's as mainly to remind me Paul that this is not only me talking to myself that I'm actually reaching out to another human being and that I'm attentive to the needs of another human being their their need to make some sense of what I'm striving to say their need for me to be as clear their need for me to be as succinct as possible and you know I can be slow I can be long-winded I can be disjointed I can be lots of things but having Joe in mind will help me to be a better communicator and when I thought of who will this person be what name will I give them I thought of the Jimi Hendrix song the Hey Joe that wonderful piece of music which comes from the 1960s my era if you like Hey Joe so it was Georgie D in Western Australia who asked me straight away who's Joe 
And I hope that this has, there has been some coherence about the background to Joe, the context for Joe, and I'll see how relationship with Joe gets on throughout the rest of the year. I picked a name, by the way, which could be for a man or for a woman. And because I like communicating with women so well, I spell the name J-O. But I believe there must be some men somewhere in the world who spell their name J-O. So there we are. That's, I think, as much as I have the energy and ability to pull together into one place. And uh, now I must see what the hole in the middle sounds like. But in any case, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found it. It's been good to offer you an explanation for something that I left ambiguous. And I hope that the mystery of who's Joe is now cleared up. All the best. Bye, Joe.